Next, we have one of the most interesting panels, uh, new closing funds brought to market and looking ahead. And now I will pass it on to the moderator to kick it off. All right, well, no, no pressure to now be the most interesting. Thank you. Uh, so I, I probably should have paid more attention to the number of speakers that we had, because I now have to stand. But uh, thankfully for everyone, uh, the panelists uh, of, of guys who have been doing this a very long time. So we're excited, as, as the rest of the, the panelists are today, to see everyone in person. So maybe I'll kick it off with a couple of introductions. We have Stephen Menard, a director at BlackRock. Uh, next to him is Gaston Jordan, a senior vice president, Hearst Eagle. Uh, next to him is Ziv Dubidetsky. Ziv, did I, did I butcher that? Ziv Dubitsky. Okay, that's a little better. Uh, CLO and CCO at PIMCO Investments, and then Bill Myers, a senior advisor at, at XAI. So maybe just to start off, just kind of give a quick overview of, of the closed-end fund market right now. And it's, as you heard from the panelists earlier, it's clearly no secret we're kind of in the midst of a rather difficult market environment. Uh, and that's an environment that's really seen across the asset types and, and products, so not limited in any way just to closed-end funds. But maybe just color on the closed-end fund market specifically, you know, there were 13 listed CEFs that were brought to market last year. Uh, we've only seen three so far this year, so obviously a little bit difficult in terms of fundraising. And the size of the IPOs that we've seen this year are, are a little different than some of the, the billion-dollar funds we saw last year. And I guess finally, just maybe to pile on a little worse, um, some of the discounts we've seen now are wider than what we've historically seen over the last 12 months. So I think the last I saw at the end of last month, it was an average of 9.8 percent uh, on the discount. So rather significant um, increase from what was, I think, about 5% or 5.8% as a 12-month trailing average. So maybe with all of that in mind, Zev, what, what would you say is um, some of what you expect fund sponsors or underwriters in the closed-end fund market um, to be doing and thinking about going forward? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, um, and good to see everybody in person. You know, uh, I represent, as um, an attorney, I represent our broker-dealer that supports the um, PIMCO advisor. And so I'll, you know, my comments, I think, will be a little bit more bent towards the distribution side of um, selling a closed-end fund. And I, like, it, it, you know, it's hard to look into the future, but I think that's sort of an interesting, maybe, pause in um, what had been, like, the evolution of the closed-end fund towards, like, these bigger deals and, you know, um, bigger capital raises. and. Um, I think like what maybe we'll see, and it's just you know my own personal point of view is um, more focus from distribution teams on, and in no particular order. I think um, like a tighter syndicate, a syndicate where uh, the issuer feels um, more confidence that they they know who's in the syndicate and that the capital will be stickier. Maybe a little bit more of like an institutional slant to the end investor. Um, I think less focus on sort of like big headline capital raises and more focuses on more focus on stickier capital. Um, and I think like for us, it's important that um, we have good transparency into the underlying FAs. I think like that's going to be an important thing, so that we have more confidence um, in who the end investor is. Because I think the integrity of the product, you want long-term investors, and um, you know there's a lot of good that came from the CEF 2.0 model in terms of aligning the advisor's um, incentives with the issuer and with the um, end investor, but one of the challenges is that um, 
there are those out there who, are after the penalty period, are going to flip those shares, and I think that's not good for the ecosystem. Um, and so maybe this like current situation we have in the market alleviates some of the pressure on sales teams to just like post big numbers, and instead they can, um, you know, to look they can look to strategies and look to put together syndicates that um, that will be a a better um, investor base for the product long term. So I think that's one thing. Um, I don't want to dominate the conversation, but over the course of the you know next half hour, I'll try to contribute a couple other observations as well. Perfect. So maybe I mean, Stephen, following. Yeah, on. if, if oh, I could add go. to it, it's it's challenging because you want to get the breadth, the biggest breadth that's possible with the the product. At the same time, you want to limit the bad actors from playing and flipping the shares. So there's this this trade-off. Uh, that issuers need to to confront, and it, it's not it's not easy. Uh, it t it costs a lot of money to raise uh, a fund, so you want it to be profitable for the company, but it needs to be a good experience for the shareholders. So it it's tough to manage because if you can raise a little more, you want to do that, but. Ultimately, I found over the years that it's better to have a smaller deal that's better placed and trades better in the aftermarket because if you want to come back, people will point to previous deals. And if you can point to deals having performed well with maybe tighter syndicates, with less flipping, it'll be easier to have those conversations with advisors in the future. And I, I would just add, you mentioned NAV pricing. We all know that's a great thing. Uh, Closed-end funds 2.0, um, as we call it, but ultimately it's not the silver bullet. Uh, it's great for the investors, but clearly since the uh, NAV pricing has been in place, there's a lot of trust to, that needs to be rebuilt within the financial advisor community, so uh, as, as well as investors. So there's, there's plenty we can do in terms of adding uh, new strategies or more creative features to make the, the, the wrapper even more even more strong and built to last in the secondary. Yeah, and I think ongoing support in the secondary is gonna, like there's gonna be increased importance that issuers signal to the market their willingness to support the product over the life of the product. And you know, I don't know, Stephen, if you wanted to shed some light on some of how that can be done, but. Yeah, so I think you know when it comes to uh, the secondary support, it's something that we take very seriously uh, at BlackRock. I think um, you know in in my history in this uh, in, in this industry, I've heard a lot from financial advisors saying you know I hear from the salesperson at the IPO and then I never hear from them again until the next IPO. And so um, you know that is top of mind for me. And so you know we've tried to change that dynamic um, and change that mindset with with the advisors that we work with on these offerings. Uh, so sales support is is key. Um, providing access to the portfolio managers, providing access to specialists that know the strategies in depth uh, to just make sure that we're answering those questions that our clients have. Uh, I would also say that you know what we've tried to do with all the recent IPOs we've done, we've launched five over the last three years, um, is we have a quarterly commentary that comes out. Uh, again, that just gives you more uh, you know, color on what's going on in the portfolio, what's affecting performance, uh, and particularly, um, you know, a lot of our deals have had a focus on private markets, and so kind of providing an update on those. How are how are we ramping that part of the sleeve? 
what's happening in that market, what's different from public markets, et cetera. And then I think another key component is education. Um, I still think there are a lot of people that um, you know invest these invest in these offerings, you know, very you know high level, whether it's like based on like the theme of the offering and you know trying to get a little bit more deeper into like what actually is going on in the portfolio, what are you actually investing in, and also just understanding the structure a little bit better. Um, so one of the things that we did this year, given you know some of the issues that we've had in terms of discounts, is just you know, trying to, provide, trying to provide some color on what actually drives premiums and discounts. And uh, I think that's something that, you know, we get, a we get the question all the time, but not a lot of people have done a ton of work on, like, what actually, you know, again, are those drivers? And uh, generally what we find is that it's, you know, primarily driven by market sentiment overall. Um, and then when it comes to the individual funds, it's really driven by performance uh, and in some cases yield. And so, again, I think those are the things that we're focused on in managing these products. Um, and, and it's our, you know, th those are ways that we can enhance how these funds trade in the secondary market. And then the last thing I would say is in terms of corporate actions. So uh, on all of our uh, closed end funds, we offer uh, or we have a share repurchase program. And we've been, you know, we've tried to be active. I think a lot of the times what you see is you know, funds may announce a share repurchase program, but you don't actually see activity. Um, we've tried to be, um, you know, uh, again, fiduciaries to our clients and being active in those programs, buying back shares when it makes sense. Uh, and we've also been more transparent on that. So we, pu we publish our share repurchase details every quarter, um, you know, with, you know, how much have we repurchased during that quarter, how much have we repurchased since inception, what's the, been the benefit in terms of NAV accretion to shareholders. All right, so maybe Steven, sticking with, with you and to follow up on, on something that, that Gaston said in terms of creativity in, in the market based on where we are in, in the market cycle. Uh, obviously, BlackRock's been in, in this business a very long time, I think almost 35 years in closed-end funds, if I'm not mistaken. And you've seen a lot of aversions, I'll call it, of the, the CEF model. Um, I think we're, we call it 2.0, but I feel like we've seen more than that. So with that, what would you say you're expecting to see on, on kind of the structural side and, and new aspects of that moving forward? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. Um, you know, I think there's always room for innovation when it comes to, you know, how these products are offered. Um, and I, I, again, I think it's important to keep, you know, today's environment in context. Um, you know, these, the IPO market is cyclical. We've seen the ebbs and flows over the years. Um, and so, you know, in this difficult environment, I'm not surprised to see the IPO market shut down. Um, you know, in 2021, just to give you a comparison, you know, in 2021, we raised $17 billion as an industry. Um, when you looked at what the funds were trading at in the secondary market in terms of, you know, more of the perpetual funds, not the recently brought funds, um, many of those funds were trading at premiums. So I think on, you know, I think at one point it was about 40% of closed-end funds were trading at a premium to their NAV. So that's a lot stronger case to be buying at the IPO. When, you know, funds are trading at double-digit discounts like they are today, I think you commonly get the question, well, why would I buy it at the IPO when I can just buy, you know, something similar in the, in the secondary market at a discount uh, and have a higher yield? And so I think that, you know, again, that context is important. I still think that the, you know, the changes that we made in the 2.0 structure were really critical and important. Um, you know, before uh, investors were paying, you know, 5% upfront to get into these IPOs. Uh, now they pay nothing and there's very low minimums and you're getting access to some really interesting strategies. And so uh, that combined with the NAV liquidity, which will at some point, you know, uh, play into how these funds trade in the secondary market. Maybe we're, you know, again, we're too far out. Uh, most of these funds, the, the most recent ones, i sorry, the earliest ones were launched in 2019. So you still have another nine years to go before that liquidity event, but that'll eventually come into play. We, we typically find around five years is where that, you know, really starts to affect how the market price trades. trades. Um, you know, I, I think 
also, we just need to be a little bit, you know, more careful with how we read into this short term. So, uh, that being said, you know, when it comes to innovations, I think one of the things that we're thinking about is, you know, can we provide liquidity uh, at NAV, not necessarily 100%, but some sort of form of liquidity to get people more comfortable owning these products in the short term. So, you know, whether it's an annual repurchase offer um, or, you know, again, uh, you know, just more liquidity more frequently closer to the IPO, not necessarily 12 years out. Um, you know, we also look at other markets. Investment trusts, for instance, uh, have a lot, you know, I think that's a great place to study, you know, kind of what they're doing. Um, you know, they have things like uh, continuation votes, um, uh, you know, that, that have been helpful. They also have, um, you know, performance triggers that may, uh, uh, if, you know, if a fund underperforms a benchmark, that might trigger some sort of liquidity event. So there are, I think there are a lot of ideas out there. I think the biggest thing for us at BlackRock is to make sure that these aren't just gimmicks, right? Like that they're actually going to be working um, because all of them have an impact on our revenue stream. And uh, again, these products aren't cheap to, to bring to market to begin with. And so anything that we, um, uh, you know, anything that we do to change the structure further, um, you know, there, I think there needs to be some validity to it. Yeah, if I if I could add, I think introspection is is helpful, and and you should do it irrespective of how the market is doing. But thinking about this market in broader terms, you know, we we've been here before. The market has been cyclical; it it comes and goes. If you look at the broader IPO market, IPO activity on the corporate side is down huge amounts. There were over a thousand IPOs last year. I think there's fewer than a hundred this year. So. That is down big. If you look at the performance of traditional IPOs, they have not done well. So while we all are involved with closed-end funds, and, and frankly, they haven't performed that well, they're part of a broader market that has had challenges. So we need to think about how to go forward. We need to think about how to make these trade better. We need to think uh, how to improve them, so that should always happen whether the market is strong or whether it's not. But again, closed-end funds, uh, I, re I remember years ago, I don't know where he is, Bob Bush said, God made closed-end funds for income and for cash flow and distributions. And closed-end funds are a great, great product. And if you look at the demographics of investors and the aging of the population and up until recently how low short-term rates were, they need to fund um, their lifestyle in the future. So there are few products as good as closed-end funds to generate income, and the, the package and the structure of closed-end funds is ideally suited to help generate that. So there is a lot of good in closed-end funds. It's tough not being able to come to market as frequently as we have in the past, but these markets will turn. Equity markets will start to show life, you know, that interest rates will stabilize at some point and the the sun will shine again so it'll be back and i would just echo that we we tend to put closed-end funds into its own asset class but if you really have that introspection and that perspective and in defense of some of the larger closed-end funds that have come to market recently they have performed in sync in many ways with what's been going on with the broader market so we know fixed income has taken it on the chin Obviously, with a closed-end fund that's levered, that, that pain and that performance is going to be exacerbated. So I think as an industry, it's really important for all of us to think about what can we bring to market that's fresh, that's new. Sometimes simple is good, 
but you know, closed-end funds that are levered, leverage is a, is a four-letter word today, but that's not over a full market cycle. We know the benefits of leverage as an industry. So I think it's really important that we appreciate the, the, the funds that we can and might be able to bring down the road. There's got to be created creativity um, in, in many, on many dimensions, on many fronts. It's, I feel like if you look at the filings that are out there, it's really a lot more of the same. You know, it could be more of the same fund strategies, um, same leverage strategies, even the same fund sponsor. So if we can, you know, get into this mindset where, you know, let's have a broad, a broader market, more fund sponsors that can participate, because I can tell you, being from First Eagle, if we were going to pitch you guys a muni strategy, that doesn't make sense. We're not good at that. We're good at global equities. Obviously, you know, BlackRock's good at, at, at Muni, so is PIMCO, so is Nuveen. We all have special expertise that we can package into the closed-end fund wrapper that makes a lot of sense. The, the last thing I would say is, um, you know, I meant to say this before, is that when it comes to the 2.0 structure, remember a lot of these funds actually did trade at premiums initially. Uh, it was really only until we entered this, uh, this phase of, you know, uh, particularly an impact on you know, growth type strategies that, you know, we started to see these wide discounts. And so I think the structure did work. Um, uh, you know, I think part of it is, you know, the, the market environment, uh, also the challenge performance in the underlying. Yeah, yeah there, there's, um, there, there's a saying I've heard that the only thing that goes up when markets are, go down is correlation. So you see, you see closed end funds, even though I think there's a lot of varied closed end funds and there's a lot of interesting strategies, Unfortunately, it seems like they're all pretty highly correlated when the markets fall and fall rapidly. And going back to what earlier panels have said about education, it's just, it's so important to stress education and trying to increase awareness of closed-end funds for a lot of the reasons I mentioned before, because I think they are a great uh, vehicle to offer investors who can live through the cycles and who aren't necessarily trading on a short-term basis, but want to have a sleeve in a longer-term portfolio with exposure to maybe a more volatile segment of an asset class to which they might have already allocated, but it's a great way to boost income if investors aren't looking at their statements every day. It might be tough if they're looking at it every day, but if they look at it less frequently and think about their overall allocation uh, to an asset class and have closed-end funds using that asset class as part of that sleeve, I think closed-end funds have a really important part of people's portfolio. Yeah, and on the education point, I, th I think maybe this market or maybe a little bit of ways out once things moderate a bit, um, you'll see that the like wholesalers will want to have better data and analytics to identify the FAs that are like super users of closed end funds because those are the people who are going to be able to help with the education process like through the ecosystem and set investor expectations better um, and I think wholesalers will be more interested in spending time with that type of FA because it'll be a better end result for the end client because that FA is more likely to be able to educate on the product, on the vehicle, um, rather than putting the entire onus on the issuer to do that education. Um, but I think it's like an ecosystem-wide thing. I think the banks, too, to a degree, and you know, Jeff, I know you represent some banks, so maybe you're in a position to speak to it, um, have a role in that as well. It's challenging, because obviously like yeah. their role 
is as the underwriter, but the product continues to trade and trade on their platforms, um, and it's helpful if everybody can do you know do a part in that. Yeah, to, and to continue to beat this dead horse that's in front of us about education, it's it's just so critical because there's a lot of cynicism in offices when when people used to travel for deals. Um, there's a lot of cynicism in offices when you see advisors about the new IPO if you're not willing or able to talk about the secondary market and other products that have been offered. So I think it's important that the salespeople can understand that there's closed-end products beyond the current primary deal uh, that they should be willing and able to talk about if confronted with questions. And you, you feel like I would, I would make it a point when I was at Nuveen, and I was at Nuveen for many years. I would make it a point to travel for every deal. I didn't want to be one of the product creators who was in an ivory tower and then just gave something to the salespeople. I, I would love to travel with salespeople, and I always loved when the questions would come up, and a lot of advisors would say, you know, not everyone talks about or can talk about the secondary market, so it, it helps sponsors if they can talk about current and past deals. And I know from a legal perspective, there, there are walls and you need to be able to separate. So I, I appreciate that, Jeff, and uh, obviously we all do it correctly, but um, you, you just need to be able to do that because you'd like to come to market again, uh, but you need to address other things. You know, why did it work? Why didn't it? Um, how's it trading? Well, I, I can speak to that as, a, as an FA in a prior life for a very short amount of time. Um, I can remember some of the, the senior brokers in the office specifically saying the fund complexes that came through, they could talk about secondary market. Those are the ones they were going to go with. Mm -hmm. It was a very short amount of time, by the way. I was a horrible <laughs> FA, absolutely atrocious. Law school made far more sense for me. Um, and, and by the way, this is the kind of panel you want. Uh, it's kind of the Phil Knight strategy here, where you just get out of the way of the talent and let them run with it. So, guys, thank you. Um, but Bill, maybe a question for you, because you are now at, at XAI and you have kind of a, a unique perspective talking with a number of, of managers. Are there certain types of, of funds or strategies, maybe more to the point, you are expecting to see more of in, in the 12 to 18 month time frame? Yeah, this might be another broken record, but I think differentiation is important. So. You'd like to see different and new strategies and, and going against this countervailing belief that all closed ends are fixed income and trade is uh, um, the same asset class. You want to have something different beneath the hood. So I think alternatives, and you, you know more than me, uh, a whole lot more than me, Jeff, about the challenges of putting alts within closed end portfolios. But you know, for years and years and years, you know, attorneys would tell us that we can't do certain things and you keep pushing and prodding and, and maybe over time, you know, the envelope can be pushed. I think investors are looking for access to differentiated strategies. Closed-end funds, in addition to income, I think they were created to house illiquids. And if, if a closed-end fund doesn't have the demands of daily liquidity, I think you can put some pretty interesting uh, things in it. So there's the tension of how many interesting things can you put in it 
and just how many investors will the attorneys let you sell it to? So it, it brings as, up as this, many as you want, Bill. As many as you want. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, yeah. Which is no one. So the most interesting <laughs> product is one that no one can buy. But um, so so there's the tension. But I think you're going to see that continue in that trend. I think another important trend is we've seen the IPO market uh, for listed closed end funds dry up. You see a lot of movement in the interval fund yeah. side. And there's more and more filings for interval funds and interval funds, while they can't from a portfolio management perspective be as illiquid as a closed end fund potentially could be because you need to permit periodic um, tenders uh, of uh, an interval fund. But there's, there's some activity and there's alts that are going into interval funds and I think assets are being raised in interval funds. As someone who worked at Naveen for 30 years, I've said this to people in the past, I love listed closed end funds because for someone who has a limited attention span like me, you're dealing with a motivated um, group of, of banks and counterparts who have the same starting and finish line for a given product. With interval funds and mutual funds, it seems like each firm has their own respective timetable and time frame, and they'll get through their process if they get through it when they get through it. Um, there's nothing like the urgency of a deadline for a closed-end fund to marshal the resources and get it done. But that said, you know, interval funds for the sponsors who uh, who play in there, they can raise a, a pretty solid amount of assets. Like a closed-end fund, I think it will require a fair amount of care and feeding over the long run. And with an interval fund, you raise money over a pretty gradual amount of time, whereas a closed-end fund, you, you do it rapidly. But I think with both products, and especially with interval funds, if you want them to grow, you need to be at it all the time. And I'd argue with list of closed-end funds, you should be at it all the time about the secondary market and, and pushing that with liquidity, transparency, information. Uh, but it's another venue that I think you're going to see more and more uh, activity in the future. Yeah, and that actually, Gaston, I was going to turn that over to you. I, I can see you Absolutely. chopping at the yeah, bit. I'm, yes. I, uh, we really like the interval uh, fund wrapper. That's where you can put more privates. We have a, a credit strategy direct lending, opportunistic credit. That's where I, I like the ability to add more privates. Of course, you can do that with closed-end funds as well. But I think with closed-end funds, um, you have to thread the needle. And I think, Stephen, we talked a little bit about this because you want to put some interesting stuff in the closed-end fund, but you also want to make it accessible for the masses, if you will. You know, it's nice to be able to get into a closed-end fund, $20 uh, IPO price, $20 NAV, um, and have some unique uh, strat or allocations to privates, if you will, but you want to make it, in terms of investor suitability, available for everyone, because it is an IPO and you want to raise a lot of money, but you also want to make sure it trades well in the secondary. So the interval fund, knowing that investors, and there's the education piece to it, investors have that uh, ability to you know, tender f up to 5% each quarter, so they understand by design that they can only get so much of their money out each quarter. Whereas I think with the, the closed end fund wrapper, it's nice to have that New York Stock Exchange liquidity every day. And yes, you have to monitor where where should I get out now because it's a uh, it's trading at a 
uh, a premium to NAV or should I wait till the discount uh, heals? There's all these questions that you have with the closed end fund itself that makes you makes you wonder, okay, what else can we do to, to build good funds in the, that trade well in the secondary? And I think that could be, like you said, annual tender offers. You could have a share buyback program that has real teeth. I, we've been doing a lot of closed end funds over the years and share buyback program or share buyback language has always been baked into the prospectuses. It's just we haven't really put our money where our mouth is because there are hurdles to, to overcome because once you have those assets, it's tough to let them go, especially with the fee structure in place today. We know to do a, a IPO, there's, there's a lot of structuring fees that you have to pay. You have to pay the 2% rip to, uh, to the uh, FA. So there, there's, um, there's a lot to consider, but I think um, annual uh, tenders, share buybacks, uh, things that we can actually um, do and, 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 put and bake into a prospectus that give it more teeth, I think that's important. And there's a place for interval fund uh, and, and asset classes that you can, that the interval fund really makes a lot of sense. But I really like the, the daily liquidity and keeping the, the closed end funds um, not too simple, but yes, you can add some privates, but you also want to make sure investor suitability is, is broad for a, a regular closed end. Yeah, yeah I, I want to add a little bit about share buybacks because I'm not sure they're the panacea that people maybe think they are. Um, in, in theory, I think they're, they're good and they are accretive to NAV if they're bought at a, a discount. But that said, and again, I, I, I find myself saying this a lot. I'll, I can defer to people who know a lot more about this than me, uh, like the attorneys, but I think it's the 33 Act that prohibits the ability to buy too much of uh, shares in the secondary market. So you're limited by the previous X number of days average daily trading volume. So your footprint into the market and the ability to buy and meaningfully change the price for the good and maybe reduce that discount for, uh, for holders, you're limited by the regulation. So you're doing it for the right reasons but oddly, the regulations are preventing it from having as much of an impact as I think you and shareholders would like. And ultimately, what's happening is you're maybe marginally shrinking the fund, uh, marginally increasing expense ratio. So that's why I go back to just trying to get the word out, uh, spreading the gospel about closed-end funds and uh, the benefits they offer. Well, I think you, I think you missed your calling. If you ever want to come over to the dark side of the attorneys, <laughs> we're, we're happy to have you. So. <laughs> Jeff, I just want to make uh, one comment on just, you know, around, I think, when it comes to the structures, like we've talked about listed closing funds, interval funds, um, yeah, I think you really have to focus on, like, who are the end clients um, and what are, you know, what are you trying to accomplish in that, right? So, you know, on the listed side, to the point that was made, right, you want to have as broad of an audience as possible. Uh, it's meant for a more retail-based shareholder, um, maybe not as necessarily high net worth. Um, and so, you know, the types of strategies you, you can put in there uh, to avoid any type of suitability restrictions uh, will be limited. So again, you know, a lot of our funds where we've tried to provide access to private markets, we capped that at 25%. Um, and that's driven, again, by that suitability restriction. On the interval side, again, you're, you're probably talking to more, um, you know, RIA-type clients. You're looking at advisory-type clients versus in the IPO market. You're, again, those are typically restricted to brokerage-type accounts. So I think those are important considerations. 
And then I think on the point of in terms of bringing alternatives into the structure, I think, you know, it sounds great, you know, for a listed product, like, yes, you can give, you know, you can do a lot of things in, in the closed structure. But ultimately, I always think back, and I think it was Alex Reese who made this comment at, one, at a conference a long time ago, it's still an equity security. Right? And so you're still going to have that equity type volatility regardless of what the underlying is. And so those people who are looking for alternatives, again, alternatives can be meant for different reasons, right? Alternatives can be to amplify returns. I think that's what we've tried to do in our products. But they also, a lot of times, are meant to diversify or provide uncorrelated exposure. Unfortunately, you're just not going to get that in a listed vehicle that's going to trade on market sentiment. Well, I thought a good point you made is about um, like being fit for purpose with the end investor. You know, there's not like a better product or worse product when you're comparing the interval fund to the listed close-end fund. Um, but one thing to keep in mind that maybe swings in favor of the close-end fund 2.0 is in the brokerage accounts, if you're using an interval fund, the end investor is going to be paying an upfront fee. There's going to be a tra an ongoing trail fee, whereas on the listed closed-end fund side, they're getting in at NAV. It's true that on the interval fund side, um, in the advisory space, you're getting a product that you come in at NAV at because there's no upfront fee and there's probably no trail fee either. But that just, you know, again, speaks to education about the products and, you know, making sure that the product is paired right with the, with the end investor's expectations and needs. Um, so it's just, you know, another consideration. I guess one question as we uh, think about kind of the economics of, of, of these deals, and it was said in an earlier panel in terms of um, some of the long-term kind of break-even prospects that managers have as they think about the funds they're bringing to market. Has there been any discussion from your perspective around the economics of the 2.0 model and, and, and tweaking that at all with respect to either the banks or however else it would be, be done? Yeah, yeah that, that, that's, a, that's a hard one because it, it needs to be economically viable for all parties involved. When at Nuveen, well, for years, and, and Doug remembers, um, Doug mentioned the, the first Liberty Fund, and he had some sales charges that would make loan sharks blush uh, in the past, and, and fees have been sticky for closed-end funds for a long time. So they were close to 8% in the late 80s, early 90s. In 1999, I think there were down to four and a half. And in the industry, you saw you know, brokerage commissions and all these spreads go down. But closed-end funds upfront offering costs were four and a half percent between 1999 and 2015. In 2015, we had conversations, given the secondary market and it was trading poorly, we had conversations about reducing fees from four and a half to one and a half. And we got a lot of odd looks from banks. Um, you want a what? And um, but we we got it done, and that pendulum came, and then that became the norm for the market, and then it, it continued to swing further um, to uh, to NAV pricing. Uh, what's also embedded in some of the upfront costs are structuring fees or distribution fees. As someone who's worked on the issuer side, I would love to see those come down. Um, I would love to see the ability as an issuer to offer different types of products also. But a lot of times you, you just you need to be able to pay back these fees and have a payback period that's, that's reasonable. 
uh, back to, to products and what might be interesting. I don't know what it is, but something we always thought about for years is could you somehow issue a product that's not tied to this like income chain? And, and total return is sourced by many different um, streams. It would be interesting to have a product that maybe doesn't pay any distribution but has a total return orientation. And, and we try to do that as sponsors through managed distribution, but you're always tied to the cash flow, you're always tied to the income, and you wish that the market was smart enough to price something in the secondary market without regard to what its cash flow distribution is. And it's, it's hard to do, it's, it's really hard to do. I think the, the, the market, though, and the target audience and financial advisors are so used to that monthly mm -hmm. cash flow that yeah. they're kind of addicted to that, that distribution, whether yeah. it's a total return strategy or a fixed income product that's uh, spitting off you know, good yield to worst. So it is, it is tricky. Yeah. But the, fee, the, the upfront deal costs are, are, are very substantial. We know that. And um, you know, as an industry, I think we got to think about it because there's no clear solution, but it does prevent some of the smaller firms to come to market, and they do have capabilities. So, you know, I think if you look at uh, the, the market shares of, of closed-end funds and the at, a, at a sponsor level, it's dominated by, you know, the big three. You have, you have BlackRock, of course, PIMCO, and Nuveen. So going forward, if, if we don't take care of the secondary and we're not mindful of, look, I love this firm, but they're not good at everything. Uh, this firm's really good at this, this particular asset class or managing these type of a strategy. I think that's, that's important for us to consider as a whole because otherwise you're gonna get more of the same and it, it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy when it comes to bad secondary market trading, in my, in my humble opinion. Yeah, and, and the, the following might be heretical, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. Maybe the limitation of the size of the deals could be helpful. And, and Mariana, you might have done some research on this, but the all-you-can-eat deals might be more sloppily placed um, over the long run. Maybe they don't trade as well. Maybe it makes sense to limit the size of, of deals with really tight syndicates and create some scarcity for the deals rather than keeping uh, the, the deals running. And, Again, from a sponsor's perspective, it's if you have something that is in high demand, it's great to let it run, but maybe from a performance perspective, it would make sense to maybe not pay homage to the like last year we have and consider that the norm, but let's get this market opened up and let's uh, get issuance going, let's have the secondary market trade better, and then we'll see where it goes. And we've done that on you know, Nuveen funds, for instance, where you do cap the uh, the offering size, given the the difficulty it is to source high yield credit sometimes, or the market environment. So we could think about deal size a little more, and and maybe leave some money on the you know on the table so that there is healthier secondary market performance. Yeah, but 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 even for maybe a scalable asset class, even for yes. maybe it would still make sense. But I think that's an open discussion that the industry would. Probably need to. Well, I'm, I'm cognizant of our time, so I want to stop for a moment and give every anyone a chance to ask a question, if you may have one. I think you had one over there, Jeff. 
Hi, Will Matthews with RBC. Um, in the context of both structure and then education, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts of activism and what that might look like in the future and kind of how to, how to manage through that and deal with the education side of it with advisors. Yeah, I, all right, let me, let me start. Um, <laughs> like volunteers step forward. Uh, I, I think education is key. I, I like the markets. I, I like thinking markets over the long run corrects themselves. And over time, these things should be valued correctly. I think you can nudge the markets in the direction by trying to be as transparent as possible, getting out there as much as possible, and in trying to spread the word, not only about the primary market, but especially about the secondary market. It's a coin with two sides, and for one side to work, the other side has to be flourishing. And you can't forget about the secondary market. Now, how long is the long run? I, I you know, in the long run, we're all dead, Kane said. But um, you just, you have to keep pushing, and you have to realize that the closed-end market, it's a small-cap stock market. So it's not necessarily going to be the most efficient market, the most heavily traded market, but we can't let the challenges of pricing in the secondary market get in the way of trying to educate people. And there's a lot, a lot of challenges to cut through the noise and to educate people who don't have a lot of time to hear it. But you just you have to keep trying. And I would add, education's critical, research coverage is critical, but as an industry, if we're not bringing the right fund to market at the right time and kind of getting in at that perfect entry point, it's tough. You're going to have funds that, that trade poorly and go to discount, and that's, you know, if I'm an activist, I'm licking my chops. So if we don't, if we don't bring the right fund to market at the right time, that's a problem. All right, I think on that note, I think we have, we've run over on time, so uh, if we could thank the panelists, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks.